We're going to continue our series uh, entitled Friend of God. If you have a Bible, uh, you can turn to Luke chapter 1, put a marker in John chapter 3, or since they're so close to one another, uh, you don't even need to put a marker in John 3. We'll get to that at the end of the message. I want to introduce you to somebody uh, who's new to our staff, uh, and I want to use it as an opportunity to talk to you about part of the call on Pillar Church, all right? One of the calls on my life and on our church is to raise up senior pastors and send them out wherever God calls them, okay? So you need to understand, the the call God gave me was not to build a castle where I am the man. The call God gave me was to partner with Jesus who builds the church and my job was to build the kingdom. That's my job. So I understand, you know, sometimes, you know, when I'm out for a couple of weeks during the summer trying to make it up to my family for all the things they've missed out on the first five months of the year, I know some would be like, when is Preston coming back? I like it when Preston preaches. Okay, number one, let's not turn our senior pastor into a narcissist. I'm just asking on his behalf. Preston's so amazing. No, no, no. No, no, no. Jesus is in the room. That's what I want us to talk about, okay? But number two, can you step back for a moment and understand what an amazing kingdom opportunity God gave Isaac for three weeks? Isaac's gonna go senior pastor at some point. Listen. Part of the call on Isaac's life is to senior pastor. And part of the responsibility God's given me and us is to help prepare him for that day. And this was a big step for him. So listen, and we're talking about John the Baptist today. One of the most famous things he says is, I must decrease so that he can increase. I just want you to, let's have a kingdom mentality, okay? So I say that to say, one of our new hires, this is Pastor Brent Hatchett, and he is coming on staff as one of our new teaching pastors. So you're gonna see, you're gonna see Brent preaching in the pulpit, you're gonna see him teaching classes, you're gonna see him putting together content for online, putting together curriculum and classes for discipleship. This is a big part of this season as our church. We're a feeding church. So what does a feeding church do? You bring in feeders to feed the body of Christ, not just the local church, all right? So he and his wife, Shannon, Shannon uh, coaches track at ASU, Uh, phenomenal family. I just wanted you to be able to put a name with a face so that you can make them feel extremely welcome. You'll see him in the pulpit fairly soon, but I just wanted you to know this is, and and listen, God might call Brent to go senior pastor in a couple years. And, and, And let me just, I'll let you in on a little secret that I haven't told you before. When we transitioned to Pillar, one of the things I told the Lord was, if you let me pastor this church for 25 years, and I don't mean in 10 and 15. I mean, 10 is gateway, 25 is pillar. If you let me pastor pillar for 25 years, I want you to know one of my dreams. It would be for every year I pastor, our church sends out one senior pastor to start or take over a church in leadership. One a year, that's 25 senior pastors over the next 25 years. So if that's, what, if that's the call that God has for Brent, He'll figure it out in the next couple of years, and and that's great. If it's not, that's great. But this is war. You need to know this is war. 
I know it's war. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities in the unseen world, and Jesus is coming again soon. So since this is war, here's what I and we as a leadership team have decided to do, to bring in people who will bring their bullets and fire them in the enemy's direction and help us build the kingdom of God on the earth in this day. Is that cool with you? Okay, buddy, it's good to have you here. Love you. All right, all right, all right. Let's jump into the message. I gotta cut a little shorter now. We are continuing our mini-series within a series. So we've been in Friend of God since the beginning of the year. But for four weeks, we talked about some of God's best friends recorded in the Old Testament. Now we're transitioning for four weeks to talk about some of God's friends in the New Testament. So I'll I'll tell you, unless I feel the Lord throw a curveball. Today we're talking about John the Baptist. Next week we're talking about John the Beloved, who out of the disciples is my favorite disciple, John the Beloved. Then we're going to talk about Paul. Then we're going to end this mini-series talking about Jesus as the ultimate friend of God. Nobody taught us how to be best friends with the Father more than the Son. So we'll work up to that. It's going to be a lot of fun. But this message, especially if you were under the age of 35, I need you to pay attention to this one. Okay? Doesn't mean if you're over the age of 35, tune me out. All right? It just means if you are under 35... I need you dialed in today, okay? You ready? Luke chapter one. This is the verse, in my opinion, that kind of shows what kind of friends John the Baptist and Jesus were. The the context here, uh, Elizabeth, John's mother, is carrying him in her womb. Mary, Jesus' mother, is carrying Jesus in her womb. And the two moms end up in a room together with both of their wombs full, and scripture tells us what happens in Elizabeth's womb. Luke chapter one, verse 41. At the sound of Mary's greeting, in other words, when Mary, the mother of Jesus, carrying Jesus in her womb, walked into the room, watch what John does in his mother's womb. Elizabeth's child leaped, did somersaults, started kicking like crazy inside of her. This is how you know John the Baptist and Jesus were friends, because this kid in the womb is going nerdy in love with Jesus. Jesus just enters the room in the womb of his mother, and John the Baptist is like, whoa, my man. And we see throughout scripture, they weren't just cousins. They were cousins, but they were friends. And there's not a lot recorded, but you, in my opinion, because of the way you see John live his life, you can tell he was a friend of God. So I wanna walk you through four things that John the Baptist teaches us about friendship with God so that each of us can become more intimate friends with God. Point number one, God's friends are clear on God's call. All of God's friends have a call. In fact, all of God's children have a call. But it's typically the friends of God who most understand the call of God. Luke 1 76 is a prophetic moment in John the Baptist's life. Right after he's born, and to give you the context, his father, Zechariah, had gone mute. God took away his ability to speak for a season because of his lack of faith. So the baby's born, and the family is around saying, what are you going to name the child? And before Elizabeth can even answer, they say, we think you should name him after his father. Elizabeth says, no, his name is supposed to be John. 
No, no, we think it should be Zechariah. He should be named after his father. Zechariah can't speak. He motions to someone to bring him a tablet so he can write something. They bring him a tablet and here's what he writes emphatically. His name is John. And the second he wrote it, he could speak again. And I want to read you just one of the verses, one of the lines he prophetically utters. Because once he starts speaking, he prophesies over the nation of Israel and also over his son. Look at what he says about his son prophetically. Luke 176. And you, my little son, will be called the prophet of the Most High. This is your call. Because you will prepare the way for the Lord. Now, this prophetic moment actually comes from Isaiah chapter 40, verse three. Listen, it's the voice of someone shouting, clear the way through the wilderness for the Lord. Make a straight highway through the wasteland for our God. Jesus in Matthew chapter three, verse three, helps us understand that Isaiah was talking about John the Baptist. He had a call. From birth, he had a call. And you can see how he lived his life. He was clear on the call of God on his life. What's a call, Preston? Well, the most simple definition I could probably give you is, it means you're chosen by God for certain purposes, very specific purposes. Proverbs 16, verse four says, the Lord has made everything for his own purposes. Not Preston's, not yours. Everything God makes, he makes on purpose. It's his purposes, even the wicked for a day of disaster. The closer you are to God, the clearer God's call is going to be. I spend a decent amount of time around young leaders, and one of the questions I get on a semi-consistent basis is, Preston, how can I know the call of God on my life? How can I really get the call? How can I receive the call? And here, here's my advice. Seek the one who calls, not the actual call. I made more mistakes in my life seeking out the call at the expense of seeking out the caller. You want, you want to understand the call of God in your life? Seek the one who gives the call. Standing on a stage might be the call of God in your life. Don't seek the stage. Seek the Spirit of God, the one who gives the call. Who actually cares about what your call is? And let me help you understand this. The call on your life doesn't go like this. Well, I just want to do everything I can while I have the time to do it. That's not how God rolls. Here's how the call of God in your life looks. Doing everything he asks you to do, how and when he asks you to do it. The call of God in your life is obedience, to do whatever he says. When you were purchased, your life no longer belongs to you. And the call isn't really even yours, it's his. And God's friends know and understand God's call. Second question I get asked, usually from younger leaders, how can I get more anointing for my calling? And here's my answer. One word, abide. Abide. When you abide in the one who calls, you will never lack anointing for the call. Abiding and anointing always go hand in hand. Listen to this line right here. God gives every one of his children gifts, but he only gives his friends his oil. 
I started chasing him when I was 13. At 15, he gave me a little heads up of what I was created to do. Then when I was 18, the first time I came to Arizona, he made it very clear what he created me to do. But the call didn't start because of me. The call came in response to me seeking the caller. It's easy to get clear on the call of God in your life the nearer you draw to the God who gives the call. That's why God's friends understand God's call. Second thing that John the Baptist teaches us about friendship with God, God's friends know authority is developed in anonymity. This is especially for the younger leaders. God's friends know that authority is developed in anonymity. Look in verse 80, because some of you might be thinking, and, and honestly, Scripture tells us what everybody in the room, when Zechariah started speaking, what they were all thinking. They look at this baby boy who, who's been born, and now a prophetic word is spoken over him, and his father, who was mute, got his voice back simply by writing out his name. Here was their response. What is this kid gonna do with his life? This kid is clearly supernaturally special. And they literally ask, what is going to happen with this kid? So if you're wondering, what happens next? Because some of us think this is how God rolls. When there's a call, everything just immediately starts going like this. Can I help you understand what I've learned over the last 30 years of walking with him? When he gives you a call, the next move isn't to go like this. You know what it is? The next move looks more like this. He takes you to the backside of the mountain where nobody can find you. He hides you. God took John out to the middle of nowhere where he would be around no one to prepare him for the day God would put him out in front of everyone. In the kingdom, it's called divine hiding. This is how God works. We see this about Joseph's life. Joseph got the call, then he went off into hiding. God had a process which involved hiding him until he was ready. Psalm 105 verse 19 says, until the time came to fulfill Joseph's dreams, the Lord tested his character. Where did he test his character? In a pit? In a prison cell? Not in the palace. It was off the radar. Some of God's best work, I am convinced, is done in hiding. And if you would do a study of all of God's friends, you will see they all experience seasons of hiding. We talked about Moses. Moses grew up in Pharaoh's house for 40 years. And what happened next? After he learned everything he could learn for four decades, God takes him out to Midian in the middle of nowhere around no one to learn how to pastor the people of Israel by tending for the sheep. 40 years of hiding. Moses spent 80 years in hiding before it was time to hit the radar. Why would God do this? Why is God hiding you right now? Let me help you understand. It's not because he's mad at you. It's not because you're bad. It's simply because you're not yet ready. Before God allows a person to be seen in order to bring him glory, God intimately and intentionally shapes them in places where no one can find them. 
Preston, why does God hide his friends? It just seems cruel and unusual. It's actually not. First, he hides us because a friend doesn't send a friend until the friend is ready. Anonymity is one of God's greatest gifts. Notoriety, which is simply the act of being known for something, notoriety is one of God's greatest tests. God will not give you notoriety until you pass the test of anonymity. The way God prepares you to steward notoriety is to break you while no one is watching. Don't you just love our God? Wow, Preston, this is really harsh. Is this what you're always going to be like after vacation? I'm preaching the book. And it's actually not harsh. Because if in anonymity, God doesn't break you, when God gives you notoriety, the enemy will use it to bury you. And so, he breaks you while no one's watching. Why else though, Preston, does God hide his friends? Well, there's actually a romantic why in my opinion. This friend of ours, capital F, so badly wants to be with his friends that he will from time to time remove one of his friends from the public eye for a season just to have them all to himself. How romantic is that? That the God of the universe in anonymity would say to you, you know what, in this season, I just don't want to share you with everybody else right now. I just want it to be the two of us. Help me understand how when God hides you, it could ever be a bad thing. One of the biggest things I learned during seasons of hiding for me personally, it's God's grace that he hides you. If God doesn't hide you when you're not yet ready, you know what would happen if he promoted you? He'd actually be exposing you. And so he hides you and breaks you in order to build you in such a way that you can steward more influence to bring him more glory. So if you're somebody who just wakes up every morning saying, God, give me more influence, understand, in my opinion, what you're actually saying to God. God, break me even more. So be careful. God, give me more influence. Typically, before he can trust us with more influence, he has to take us around the backside of the mountain. God calls, then God hides. But what does he do next? Just so you don't get too frustrated. Isaiah chapter 49, verses 1 and 2. Isaiah helps us understand what happens after God calls and hides. The Lord called me before my birth. From within the womb, he called me by name. He made my words of judgment as sharp as a sword. He has hidden me in the shadow of his hand. Now watch this next part. I am like a sharp arrow in his quiver. Here's what Isaiah says to us that he learned in his season of hiding. That God hides you before God shoots you. When God is hiding you, he is fashioning the arrow for battle. Isaiah says, hiding is not punishment. When God is involved, 
and is the one hiding you for a season, it's actually an endorsement. Every one of the people God used in Scripture went through a season of hiding. So why would we gripe to God? Pout in the corner that we're in a season of hiding. If I could go back and change some things about my 20s, I'd go back and change how much I griped and how poor my perspective was of a season of hiding. I wish I would have understand it was actually romantic what God was doing. Saying, Preston, I, I, I would like to build a relational substructure of intimacy with you before I let anyone know you even exist. Because Preston, things will start to, to go like this and I don't want to lose this. So I'm going to make this season of hiding take even longer because you, my friend, are slow. And so I'm gonna hide you in the shadow of my wings. You know how romantic it is that David would say in Psalm 119, God, you alone are my hiding place. I don't hide in money. I don't hide in possessions. I don't hide in power. You are my hiding place. You're the one I run to. Only in a season of hiding can you learn how awesome hiding is. And God's friends understand that authority is always developed in anonymity. The very first thing that happened, verse 80 of Luke 1, John grew up and became strong in spirit. And he lived in the wilderness until he began his public ministry to Israel. After this amazing call, what does God do next? Takes him out to the wilderness where no one could find him to prepare him for the day God would put him out in front of everyone. Here's the third thing John the Baptist teaches us about friendship with God. God's friends are spoken highly of by their capital F friend. Matthew chapter 11, verse 11, Jesus makes this really strong statement about John the Baptist, but I don't want you just to hear this about our boy JTB. I want you to hear the very next sentence talking about all of God's friends. I want you to see how God talks about his friends. Jesus in Matthew 11, 11 says, I tell you the truth, of all who have ever lived, none is greater than John the Baptist. Is that not a divine compliment? Jesus is talking about one of his close friends. Watch what he says next. He starts talking about all his friends. He says, yet even the least person in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John is. Here's my question for you. What is the narrative you have about God's narrative of you? Let me say it another way. How do you think God talks about you behind your back? What do you think he says about you when you're not able to hear it? Now, don't get all religious on me and act like, well, I know what scripture says he says. Yeah, I know that you know that. But if I followed you around for a week, I'd actually be able to tell what your narrative about God's narrative is. And many of us develop our narrative about God's narrative of us by listening far too much to God's enemy and what he says about us. And some of us actually believe that God might be divinely two-faced. That he's sweet to me in front of my face, but he's frustrated with me behind my back. 
So let's just, let's, let's talk this out. Because if you're going to be friends with God, you need to understand how he talks about you when you're not around. The best way I can do it is give you this one truth, this one sentence. You are God's favorite thing he has ever purchased. I don't know if you believe this. I can't do anything about whether or not you believe it, but I know it to be true. You, sir, you, ma'am, are God's favorite thing he has ever purchased. Here's how you know. Check the price tag. There is nothing he has ever paid more for than what he paid for you. So let me help you understand. I'll use one of my friends. I have a friend who, growing up as a young boy, had dreams of one day being able to have a certain kind of car. And his thought was, if I'm ever able to be successful in business the way I've seen my other family members be successful, one day I'd like to buy my dream car. And wouldn't you know, God supernaturally blessed this man to steward kingdom resources. And he was able to buy the little boy's dream car. When I asked my friend, hey, what do you love most about your dream car? He's never answered me like this. That piece of garbage? That thing costs me $400 every time I get an oil change. Let me tell you all the things I don't like about my most expensive purchase. He's never talked like that. Want to know why? Because apparently, the more we pay for something, the more in love we become with it. He doesn't bash his most expensive possession. He loves it. He's grateful for it. Okay? Do you think it makes sense that the father would pay the highest price, the blood of his son, for you and then badmouth you behind your back? Well, Preston, he's about the slowest human who's ever lived. That Preston takes me 12 times to get it through his thick skull what I need him to do. That Preston, my word, that 22-year-old Preston, no one on earth puts their foot in their mouth more than 22-year-old Preston. Now, would it be true if he said those things? Yes. But does he? No. Let me give you a word for that kind of behavior. Gossip. And one of the seven things Scripture says God hates is gossip. That negative talk about someone behind their back that you would never say to their face. If you're gonna be friends with God, you need to understand God never talks like that about his friends. Well then Preston, how do you think God's talking about me right now? Well, let me tell you what I think. I think it's entirely possible that right now, God is holding up your kindergarten school picture, talking to the elders around the throne going, look at my baby. Look how cute she was. Then he's whipping out your fourth grade picture where you had like five less teeth than you should, saying, look how cute he looks. He is in love with you. He's not the God who bashes his friends behind their backs. In front of everyone, he says, 
Let me tell you something about my friend John. There is nobody who's been born better than him. And yet, the person considered to be the least of my friends is even greater than John. Because that's how I am with my friends. God speaks highly of his friends. Here's the fourth thing John teaches us about friendship with God. God's friends know where they stand. If you put a marker in John 30, go ahead and flip over there. I'm going to read you a, a, kind of a lengthy passage here because this is probably the passage that John is most known for. It's robust in what it teaches us about being friends with God, about being on mission from God and with God. So there's a lot there. But John, John makes some really calibrating statements about friendship with God that I believe we really need to pay attention to in this passage. John chapter 3, starting in verse 23, says, At this time, John the Baptist was baptizing at Anon, near Salim, because there was plenty of water there, and people kept coming to him for baptism. A debate broke out between John's disciples and a certain Jew over ceremonial cleansing. So John's disciples came to him and said, Rabbi, the man you met on the other side of the Jordan River, the one you identified as the Messiah, is also baptizing people. Watch what they say next. And everybody is going to him instead of coming to us. Okay, this is a castle mentality at the expense of a kingdom mentality. Here's why I believe God had not yet hidden John's disciples the way he had hidden John, because they talk like this. What are they essentially saying? John, it's all about me, 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 me. And this Jesus guy is getting in the way of us. Watch how John responds, because this is meant to calibrate every single one of God's friends. Verse 28, you yourselves know how plainly I told you, I am not the Messiah. I'm only here to prepare the way for him. Now listen to verse 29. It is the bridegroom who marries the bride. And the bridegroom's friend is simply glad to stand with him and hear his vows. John says, let me help you understand something. I've told you this before, I will say it again. I'm not that guy. I'm just here to prepare the way for him. I'm not even worthy to tie his flip-flops. It's not about me, 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 me. In fact, verse 30, what he says next is, this is why I am filled with joy at his, Jesus, success. Listen, God's friends know where their success comes from, and they celebrate God's success more than their own. John says, I'm filled with joy because so many people are following Jesus. And then what does John say next? I must decrease and he must increase. Can I tell you something about friendship with God? The measure of intimacy you experience with God will be congruent with how much attention you draw to yourself. You know one of the hardest things about my job? Is to make sure your attention never gets on me. See, some people think that the call of God on my life is to stand right here 
Physically, I do, but spiritually, I don't. You know where I stand? John the Baptist taught me where I stand. He says, Preston, let me help you understand. People are going to think you're awesome because you're standing right here. But you are not that awesome. You are simply the friend of the groom, and the groom marries the bride. And here's the godly, healthy perspective a friend of God has. They are just grateful to be in the room with him. Preston, you don't stand here spiritually. Jesus does. It's his church, not yours. Let me tell you where you stand, Preston. Off to the side, my man. This is where you stand. And proximity to be able to hear everything he says, follow his every move. But son, it is not about you. This is his kingdom, not yours. And friends of God don't seek success for themselves. The influence they receive is always simply viewed as an opportunity to bring God more glory. Now here's what I believe. John chapter one, verse 29, helps us see, in my opinion, if you try to boil John the Baptist's life down to one word, it shows us the one word. But I believe it also shows each one of us what the call of God on our life is. John 1 verse 29 says, the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, here's the one word, look! You can boil his whole life, his entire calling down to one word, look! Look! Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is the one I was talking about when I said a man is coming after me who is far greater than I am, for he existed long before me. Here's what I believe one of the greatest things John the Baptist teaches each of us as children of God, that every child of God alive after Jesus' first coming is meant to prepare the way for the return of the Lord's second coming. Preston, I don't know what the call of God on my life is. I just told you. Look! In business, God's blessed you so that people listen to what you say. Make sure the only things you talk about are not business related. Make sure on a consistent basis you were saying, look! When they look at you, make sure you point them to him. I love it when you say, Preston, I love your preaching, I love it, it's great. But what's my response anytime you've ever said that to me? Typically, it goes something like this. As long as you're hearing God speak, I'm good. It's not about us. Where is your place as a friend of God? Next to him, bringing glory to him.